Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, author Peter Gazzardi takes us down a yellow brick road of his own with his debut work of inspiration, Emeralds of Oz, Life Lessons from Over the Rainbow, HarperCollins, 2019. In addition to the many insights Peter draws from The Wizard of Oz, he finds nine emeralds, which he believes have great value and power for guiding one through life's obstacles. Carol Burnett says that she loved the book as much as the movie because it opens your eyes and heart to a new way of being in the world. We start the show with Peter reading from early in the book where he answers the question, why the Wizard of Oz? And before we're through today, you'll be reminded why there's no place like home. Lots of movies offer valuable life lessons, yet this one stands head and shoulders above the rest. Today, eight decades after its Hollywood premiere on August 15, 1939, it's still remarkably alive in our cultural consciousness. You need only look to contemporary hits like The Wiz or Wicked to see its influence. The film is also mentioned time and again in songs, movies, TV shows, books, articles, blog posts, cartoons, podcasts, and conversations. What makes it so special? Why is this the most watched film of all time? Stories become classics when they tune into fundamental aspects of our shared human experience. We can all relate to Beowulf's courage in confronting a man-eating monster to Ulysses' 10-year struggle to return home to his wife and family, and to Romeo and Juliet's defiance of a deadly feud between their families. We root for Frodo in his selfless quest to end Sauron's threat to Middle-earth, and for young Harry Potter in his unlikely challenge to the vast nihilistic powers of Voldemort. Dark forces have been unleashed in the world. We may feel helpless against them, yet evil must be vanquished, and goodness renewed. We must fight the tendency to sleepwalk through our lives and awaken. This is the fundamental aspect of the hero's journey. At first, Dorothy Gale seems an unlikely hero. In Kansas, the 12-year-old is no match for a vengeful neighbor determined to destroy Dorothy's beloved dog. However, by the film's end, she has prevailed over two wicked witches and a notorious wizard, helped her friends achieve their heart's desire, and finally attained her own. She starts off as a child, but by the final scene, she's every bit the equal of the adults gathered around her recovery bed. During the course of her journey, viewers arrive at insights that are the hallmark of every classic book or film. Gems of wisdom, large and small, have been embedded in the path to the Emerald City to ensure that we are not just entertained and inspired, but also enlightened. Emeralds of Oz, Life Lessons from Over the Rainbow is Peter Gazzardi's debut as an author, but not his first experience with books. Peter worked in publishing for more than 40 years, editing such prominent books as Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time, Deepak Chopra's Ageless Body, Timeless Mind, Queen Noor's Leap of Faith, Arena Huffington's Fanatics and Fools, and Paula Poundstone's There's Nothing in This Book That I Meant to Say. He also worked with Carol Burnett on two memoirs. Trained in the art of identifying the lessons that lie at the heart of books and films, 
Peter devoted two years to exploring the Wizard of Oz and found lessons to live by. The place he's called home for more than 20 plus years is Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's Digital Branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcast. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Peter, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here, Landis. Yeah, so borrowing from... Uh yeah, the nomenclature of the Wizard of Oz say something like what Dorothy would say to Toto. Peter, you're not in Kansas anymore. You're on Charlotte Reader's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and it's great to be here. I can yeah. apply all the emeralds of wisdom to this experience. Yeah, and we're in a, and we're in a studio with Technicolor and a nice, you know, some colorful walls here. And so, it's a miracle. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> but before we explore the wisdom of the Wizard of Oz. Um, and before we get started on your own yellow brick road to writing this book, I'd like to uh, dabble a little bit in the story. So this story, The Wizard of Oz, which was first in a book and then in a famous uh, film that caught the attention uh, of the nation then and years later, uh, starts like any good story with conflict, right? I mean, you've got uh, M- Elmira Gulch who wants to take Dorothy's dog away from her. Yes. Right at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> right at the beginning of the movie. And it's in black and white, so it's ominous, right? It's ominous. Uh, something's wrong right from the get-go. <laughs> Dorothy's looking over her shoulder, walking yeah. down that road with her dog, yeah. and she's upset. We yeah. don't know what it is, but something's going on. Something's going on. And, and, it's, and, and it's a bleak Kansas environment, you know, with uh, and, and the wind's picking up, too, you know, so we, yep. we, know, we know that's happening. And then, of course, there's Amira Gulch, and she shows up, and I love this line that Annie M. says. She says, Mira, just because you own half the county doesn't mean you have the power to run the rest of us. For 23 years, I've been dying to tell you what I thought of you. And now, well, being a Christian woman, I just can't say it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she's frustrated. Yeah, and yet, you know, uh, I I guess Omira's got the upper hand in this early part of the movie, right? Absolutely. Um, Both Aunt Em and Uncle Henry cave really quickly, which kind of uncovers one of the big themes of the movie, which is that Dorothy, Dorothy's caretakers cannot protect her. They can't do a job of of taking care of her in the way she as a child might like. So very quickly, she's thrust out into the world and it's going to become the world of Oz, Mm. where she has to take care of herself and she has to make this odyssey from child to adult. Yeah, so then next in the movie, you've got this yearning for escape somewhere over the rainbow, yes. way up high, and yes. the dreams that you dream of once in a lullaby. Yes, right, right? yes. That song, yeah. I mean, arguably, you talked about tension. Yes, there is some at the beginning. But arguably, this could be any old movie mm-hmm. until the moment when Dorothy Judy Garland steps into the barnyard and begins to sing that kind of achingly beautiful song. Yeah. I mean, you get goosebumps. Uh, you Suddenly you realize you're in something, something special is yeah. going to start happening. I YouTubed it before today just to listen to it again. Yeah. <laughs> and it really does. Of course, I listened to it many times as a child yes, growing up. but it holds up extraordinarily well. And we're going to talk inside baseball about the movie a little bit later in the show but one of the things i'm just going to jump ahead to it that i noticed is that that song almost didn't make the cut right that's right in fact it was cut could you uh, imagine that movie without without that song (laughs) impossible impossible Uh, but it was cut because it was deemed by the kind of powers that be senior executives that to have a heroine in a barnyard was somehow singing in a barnyard was somehow kind of unseemly uh and uh just not (laughs) Uh, fashionable, beautiful enough. More, um, more unseemly than the munchkins in lollipop land? <laughs> yes, much more. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, and then, uh, you know, Zeke, who's one of the farmhands, says, it's a twister, it's a twister, you know, run for cover kind yes. of thing, you know. And then, you know, the, everything starts to turn and, and the house is flying through the air. And that must have taken some 
know, some real skill at that time to create that, that image. Oh, absolutely. In, in the movie. Yes. Uh, yeah. The cyclone itself was an incredibly elaborate mm-hmm. uh, piece of special effects mm-hmm. um, at the time, very demanding. And then with the help of Technicolor, uh, which came into the movies, Dorothy steps out of this house that she's just dropped on the Wicked Witch of the East into Munchkinland, right? Yes. And, and a miracle it, of yeah. Technicolor. All of a sudden, <laughs> everything is glistening. Everything is spectacularly beautiful. And Dorothy is kind of awestruck, this kind of gaze of, of wonderment on her face. And I love, I was looking up some of the quotes beforehand, and I love the Munchkin Corner. As a corner, I must aver, I thoroughly examined her. And she's not only merely dead, she's really most sincerely dead. <laughs> and do you think about those things? It just comes back to you, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the music and the lyrics, they hired the very best um, yeah. uh, to, to create the music and the lyrics. And it shows, it makes mm-hmm. such a huge difference with the film. And, and that was one of the, the few Oscars that the film did win. It was really eclipsed at Oscar time mm-hmm. um, by Gone with the Wind. But it yeah. did win one for, for music. Yeah. So Dorothy, and you know this from your many, many years of editing, uh, most good books, uh, at least if they're going to sell, there's a hero's journey you know, involved in the books. And, and Dorothy sets out on her hero's journey by following the yellow brick road, right? Yes, she does. Sort of the cadence starts, follow the yellow brick road. Yes. The, and then we're off to see the wizard. The wonderful Wizard of Oz, right? So you got this, uh, imagine you're bringing in fantasy as well as sort of the traditional journey. And as part of that, I read the the novel Save the Cat one time. You know, you've pro- you're probably familiar with that. Yes. It does the whole trope of how to write a book that might sell, you know, <laughs> covering, you know, you're down on your luck, you, you know, you're working through all these obstacles. And of course, you have to have some supporters, right? Well, who, yes. are, who are Dorothy's supporters? Uh, Dorothy, well, the very first supporter is Glinda. Um, the good witch. The good witch, the witch of the north, mm-hmm. who appears and kind of asks Dorothy if she's a witch and encourages the munchkins, makes sure it's, it's safe, let mm-hmm. the munchkins now can come out and celebrate mm-hmm. Dorothy. She's the first one, but of course she's going to meet many others along the way, mm-hmm. uh, most especially the lion uh, right. and the tin man and the scarecrow. Yeah, the big three, the yes. big three. Uh, who are all searching for brains, heart, and courage. Right? Yes. Uh, and one of the emeralds of wisdom, one of the kind of, I think, most profound of the emeralds, is that they already possess what it is that they so desperately desire. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a huge life lesson, which we'll, we'll talk yeah, about. exactly. Yeah. And then we learn about uh, perseverance. There's a line in the book or the movie that says, Dorothy says, if we walk far enough... We shall sometime come to some place. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a sure bet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she's uh, a leader. She's a natural leader. You know, yeah. she's encouraging. She, she gives everybody room to make their own contribution. And yet when push comes to shove, people turn to Dorothy to, to kind of point the way forward. And we hadn't mentioned uh, the author yet, Frank Baum. And he, he, he not only wrote the one book, he wrote many books in this series, but most of us are just familiar with the movie. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. The movie uh, was filmed in 1939. The book was written in 1900, 39 years before, by mm-hmm. L. Frank Baum. He finished writing it in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it became, it was illustrated by a man named Denslow, W.W. Denslow. And it became a huge hit that mm-hmm. fall as a holiday gift. Um, mm-hmm. Big bestseller. And it spun off theatrical performances and a couple of silent films, mm-hmm. uh, lots of things over the years. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until 1939 that the film that we know and yeah. love was was made based on the book, yeah. but it took considerable liberties with the book as well. Sure. And so on this hero's journey, you can't have a hero's journey without danger, right? So we got lions, tigers, and bears, oh my, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> and, then, and then the Wicked Witch of the West who says... I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. Yeah, that still gives me goosebumps. And I, you know, I can remember, and you talk about this in the Inside Baseball version in the appendix, which is nice because, listeners, the book is not just the emeralds. When you get to the back, uh, Peter shares a lot of information about, you know, the making of the book and the making of the movie. Um, but, you know, in, in part of that, we we learn these, these facts about uh, – some of these characters, some of the actors, um, and we learn some things about 
them that maybe they could apply these emeralds to themselves had they known them <laughs> yes. at the time. Uh, yeah, some of them had very difficult lives, yeah. as we know from the yeah. film Judy, which is out right now. Yeah, um, yeah so she meets the challenge. Uh, she overcomes evil by throwing water on the Wicked Witch of the West, and she melts, which is a nice image. But then all is lost again when she returns triumphantly with the uh, <laughs> broomstick because she, she misses the the hot air balloon that's going to take her home. Yes. Yeah, there are two setbacks. One is when the wizard says, you know, I, actually, I'm, I'm a, she, she, he gets uncovered as a fraud, so yeah. I can't really deliver on all yeah. my promises. Yeah. Um, then he musters, you know, ways to let the, her three comrades know that they really already possess what it mm-hmm. is they long for most. He gives them these little trinkets. Um, but what's he going to do for Dorothy? Well, he's going to get in his gondola and mm-hmm. fly her home. Mm-hmm. Um, but but when Toto jumps out uh, chasing a cat, Dorothy jumps out with him, and off goes the wizard. And now she's well and truly stuck, or, or so it seems. Per- a perfect novel because you, you've, you've won the day, but then all is lost once again. <laughs> <Yeah. right? laughs> Don't you look for those moments as an editor to get him to keep turning the page, right? Absolutely. In every good horror film, you know, the, the, the evil character is dead, yeah. but in the last minute, it's like, he's back. <laughs> he's back, he's back. All right, so... Um, and, of course, we know what happens next because you mentioned it earlier. She had what she needed uh, all along, and uh, you know, she snaps those ruby slippers together, and yes, she did. finds her way home. Yes. All right, so let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, your own yellow brick road toward writing this book, okay? Because I'm sure it wasn't as easy as walking out to the mailbox and picking up a manuscript and returning <laughs> to the house. You had uh, First, you had to have the idea, and I'd be interested to know – uh, how, how that idea came to you? You've been you've been reading books for forty some years, editing them, and yes. suddenly you si- decide this is the book I want to write about. Yeah, that was it. Was just one of those little kind of crazy coincidence slash epiphanies where I was visiting a publisher. I go to New York to visit publishers and drum up business, freelance editing. And there on the shelf was this kind of oversized edition of the seventy fifth anniversary of the the Wizard of Oz. And uh, I just looked at it, and, and in that moment, I just had this hit. It was like, you know, I've worked with all these brilliant, wise people for all these years, and yet everything that I've learned from them through osmosis, from getting to know them, um, was really right there in that film that I first watched when I was 11 years old. And I kind of blurted this thought out, and the publisher looked at me and said, you know, I think that's a really good idea. Uh, why don't you write that up as a book proposal and send it to me? Uh, so I did. He was excited. He bought it. Uh, and that began, that was the first step on my yellow brick road to writing the book, which proved to be, not surprisingly perhaps, you know, much more difficult than I had imagined. Taking an idea and then turning it into a book is, is, a, is a process. I, of all people, should know how difficult, mm-hmm. how fraught that journey can be <laughs> since yeah. I've helped so many other people navigate it. But when it's you in that little rowboat in the middle of the Atlantic at night with no oars, um, it's, it feels really different than when you're so guiding somebody else home. Did you feel a little insecurity about whether you had the brains and the brawn and the heart? To get st- <laughs> Absolutely. To get the- <laughs> Just a tad, as in totally believe they were gone. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and so uh, what kind of supporters did you have along the, this path to writing this book? Oh... <sighs> Well, I leaned on everybody I yeah, could, yeah. friends, family. Who was, your, who, was your wicked, who was your Wicked Witch? Yeah. My Wicked Witch was probably myself. Mm. Um, and, which brings up the point that, of course, Oz is a dream. Right. So one way to interpret dreams is that every character in your dream is you, right, mm. is an aspect of you. Mm. Um, so that's certainly true for Dorothy. It's, it's certainly true for me. Um, so my Wicked Witch was an aspect of myself, you know, that part of me that's terrified of, of, of accomplishing something that I've set out to do. <laughs> That's great. Well, you, you've done it well, and you've got a website, which is going to be in the show notes. You've done some videos uh, with these inspirational ideas. We're going to talk more about the, the, how you apply these emeralds and what they are in a moment. But quickly, some inf- inside baseball. There were 13 sequels to The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, first published in 1899. And then they got to selling the rights to it, and it kind of moved around among different studios. And uh, finally, it sold for the equivalent of what one point three million dollars, which I think you said in the book they they sort of facetiously called 
or, or maybe they described as the best bargain of all time next to the Louisiana Purchase. <laughs> yes. Uh, it was not that initially. Right. Initially, it was a big chunk of dough, right. and then they sunk even more money into the production. It right. was dubbed a, kind of a premiere film. Right. Uh, so they put a lot of money into it. It went over in terms of time and money. So it looked like it was going to be financially a, a, a loser. And, um, and also, in, in the year that it released... Uh, I believe it was in 1939 or 1940, one of those. 39. 39. So great movie, great cast, great ideas, great themes. Wouldn't it be that it's going to come out when all these other great movies come out? If you're the producer of this, you're going, oh, my gosh. Yes. Because that's the same year Mr. Smith goes to Washington, stagecoach. Only Angels Have Wings, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Wuthering Heights of Mice and Men, <laughs> Goodbye, Mr. Chips, and, of course, The Blockbuster. Yes, right? What is it? Absolutely. Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind, right. absolutely. which swept the Oscars. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to believe that, you know, I mean, compared to filmmaking today, you know, there were that many different iconic films that could come out in one year. And truly. Yeah. So critical date, uh, you said in, in the back of your book, uh, November 3rd, 1956, that was when CBS first did what? They first aired it on television. Right. Um, and to their surprise, it was a big hit. It was a, a great viewership. People were really thrilled. They got all kinds of positive reactions to it. Mm-hmm. So they aired it again in 59. Um, and again, the audience reaction was so positive that they decided to do it every year around the holidays. Mm-hmm. And I remember that. I was growing up in the 60s. I was young. And... I can remember each year when The Wizard of Oz came on, we would get in front of the television to watch it, and we'd scare ourselves to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Probably had Swanson's TV dinners uh, and watched it as a family. A couple other things. W.C. Fields turned down the role of The Wizard, right? Yes, he did. Women figured prominently in the book and in the movie. Why is that? Well, I think Frank Baum was... His mother was a very prominent suffragette. His mother-in-law, also very prominent suffragette. Um, so he was raised in a household where women, women had power. Um, and that very much translated into the world that he created. In fact, the men are really are all powerless or frauds. Um, and it's the women who, who, who have the power in that film. And, and I think it, way ahead of its time in that way. And the movie was filmed entirely indoors, and Toto the dog appeared in 15 more films, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. Toto was actually a girl, a female dog okay. named Terry, All a right. professional. Uh, uh, and tell us the most asked about item at the National Museum of American History. Yeah, that's the ruby slippers, for sure. Which at uh, one time was in the book. Uh, they were silver way so, back when in the book. Um, but in order to kind of take full advantage of Technicolor, uh, they became mm-hmm. red, they became ruby and sparkly, um, and became the most sought-after collector's item. Um, and, and nobody really knows. Most recently, there was a sale to a group of, of kind of prominent actors, uh, and, and I'm sure it was in the yeah. considerable millions. All right, let's talk about, uh, you've got a worksheet, and we're going to talk about this. Uh, you, you created this worksheet. You can find it on your website. Uh, it has all of the emeralds, but has some commentary that goes with each one. And, and first of all, why did you create the worksheet? Well, kind of late in the process of writing the book, I, it, it occurred to me that, you know, I had these 62 pieces of wisdom that I'd mm-hmm. found. They're kind of arranged along the narrative arc of the story. Mm-hmm. But nine of them were much longer. I had pages and pages and mm-hmm. seemed much deeper and, and more profound. Mm-hmm. So I I'd kind of played with the idea of pulling them out and looking at them as a separate kind of unit or entity. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I thought, you know, I wonder if if you run through them in the same order that Dorothy experienced these nine kind of iconic moments uh, in the film, I wonder if they would have the same effect on whatever issue you're facing in your yellow brick road Mm -hmm. that they had on hers. Perhaps you could be as successful in facing Mm -hmm. whatever it might be, whether it's an argument with your spouse or whatever it might be, that she was facing her issues. Mm -hmm. And And so I started to play with that idea. And the more I played with it, the more it seemed to work and the more I liked it. So I got this idea of creating a worksheet for readers so that they could mm-hmm. they could apply the nine emeralds to whatever might be upsetting to and them. And you've used that in workshops to, yes. s- to some success, to, 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 and, and sometimes even, um, 
what you've seen happen, you described to me, I think, before the podcast, how different people suffering with different issues uh, psychologically actually worked through this sheet and got up and gave their own testimonials. Yes, yeah. 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 Just a goosebump, great moment, yeah. yeah. You called it a game-changing experience, I think, yes. for you to see that happen. Yes. All right, so we probably ought to put the legal disclaimer. Peter's not, he's not a doctor, he's not a psychologist, he's not a therapist. No. Use this at your... Yeah, swim, at, <laughs> swim at your own risk, right? Yes, yes. In fact, I'm just, I struggle through life. I muddle through it just like everybody yeah, else. Yeah. But I find these things helpful, and other people are finding them helpful, too. Okay, so I thought it would be fun if we uh, had you read uh, from this the nine emeralds and some of the little bits of commentary, which kind of tie back to the movie, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit after that. So emerald number one is listen to your longing. Think Dorothy singing over the rainbow. In your situation that you're facing, what outcome do you desire? Not what someone else expects from you or what you're in the habit of doing. Go deeper. What outcome do you long for? Number two, see the situation as if for the first time. Think Dorothy stepping out of the farmhouse into the Technicolor miracle of Oz. If you weren't so close to this issue, what would you see? Set aside your memories, associations, biases, prejudices, everything you know about the situation and the people involved, and consider it afresh with simple curiosity. What does it look like now? Number three, celebrate yourself just for showing up. Think Dorothy surrounded by ecstatic munchkins after her farmhouse lands on the Witch of the East. Celebrate yourself for taking an active role in addressing this problem that's troubling you. You're doing a wonderful thing, a game-changing thing, just by showing up. And so is everyone else who's showing up with you. Woohoo! Number four, choose compassion. Think Dorothy as she meets the scarecrow, Tin Man, and the cowardly lion. Consider each person in your troubling scenario. Imagine walking a mile in their shoes. What might they be struggling with and why? Imagine extending them an act of kindness now that you're more aware of their situation. Now direct that compassion towards yourself. How can you act in a way that's kind to you, too? Number five, realize that you already possess what you desire most. Think about the scarecrow's brains, the tin man's emotions, and the cowardly lion's courage. We can be blind to our own virtues. The truth is, if we didn't already possess what we believe we need most, we wouldn't be drawn to it. We wouldn't be able to recognize its value. Reflect on the quality you admire most in other people, and then consider how it is already central to who you are. Number six, face what you fear. Think Dorothy throwing a bucket of water on the Witch of the West. What do you fear most in the situation you've chosen to address? Making a mistake, embarrassment, sadness, being alone? What fear might be hiding below that? Now that you've identified your fear, look at it directly and watch it shrink. Try meeting it with compassion. How does it look now? Number seven, pull back the curtain and see things as they really are. Think Toto in the wizard's palace revealing the man behind the curtain. What illusions may be at play in your situation? How do things look to you? And is it possible that they're not nearly as complex, dramatic, or insurmountable as they appear? Perhaps the truth is altogether different. When you pull back the curtain on the story you've been telling yourself, what do you see? Number eight, you've got the power and you've had it all along. Think Glinda's final intervention on Dorothy's behalf, just when she's giving up hope of ever returning to Kansas. After considering the seven emeralds that came before this one, it's time to acknowledge the truth about your own power. It's real. It's yours. And now it's time to own it. Make a note of the power you hold in this situation. Turns out it's been there all along. As Glinda says, you just had to find this out for yourself. Number nine. There's no place like home. Think Dorothy clicking the heels of the ruby slippers three times. Home. 
It's not just a place. It's a feeling inside you. When you become aware of this, you're always home. And in this home, you'll find a door. Open it, and the walls dissolve. You are immersed in the limitless sea of divine energy each of us was born into in this lifetime, and to which we return when it is done. This is the home within your home, and it is always here to hold you in its embrace. All right, Peter, so having shared the nine emeralds and some thoughts related to each one, how are we supposed to use what you've just given us? So um, the idea here is that you set out on a little nine-step process. Uh, So take whatever the issue might be. Um, It might be, uh, so I just had a big argument with my wife, and I'm feeling kind of bruised and... Uh, we're not talking, a frost has descended uh, in the household. Um, so I just go off by myself and run that feeling, or run that experience through the nine emeralds, just really quickly. Um, listen to your longing, hope that she'll stop, ma- stop being mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, what my longing, uh, at first blush, what do I want? Well, I want to be right, doggone it. I, I want to... When that, that's the problem, I, I have a friend who's a mediator who tries to help uh, you know adverse parties solve their problems. And the first thing he tells me in mediation is, you know, human beings have a need to be right. Yes. Now you can either be right, <laughs> or you can settle this case. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and probably the same thing is true about uh, relationships. Yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. You can either be right, or you can have a marriage, right? Yes, right. Or you can be happy. Now, <laughs> which one be, do you want? Which one do you want? Yeah. yeah. And that that and often the, the process can stop right there. Um, yeah, it's like yeah. okay, I realize what do I long for? Yeah. I really long for a feeling of connection with this person that I've spent the last forty years with, mm-hmm. uh, and we can mm-hmm. stop right there. In order to feel more connected, what do I need to do? Mm-hmm. Maybe I need to apologize. Maybe I need to to feel some get some sense of what she's going through. That's mm-hmm. actually the fourth emerald. But so I kind of quickly run through them. I might stop right there, or I might kind of try to see it as if for the first time. Like, what does this actually look like? I mean, here's a man feeling kind of bruised and a little lonely and hurt. And here's a woman who's probably feeling the same thing in another room nearby. Uh, What, you know, what might be a way to bridge that gap? It's like, just look at it without all of the trappings. Mm. Um, And it's sort sort of a way to deal with insecurities too, right? You've got, everybody has this... uh, I don't know everybody, but a lot of people sometimes have self-doubt, right, about what whatever they might be getting into, which is in, in part what the three main supporters on this yellow brick road had. They doubted their brains, they doubted their courage, they doubted their hearts, right? Yes. Until they figured out that they had something. Yes, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. That's you're kind of getting ahead of us on on the on the nine. I, I like jumped, to run I through. Ahead. You okay. jumped ahead. I like to yeah. run through them in the order that okay. Dorothy did. Yeah, but you already saw the problem with your wife in the first one, right? Well, that's true, <laughs> right? But if I had not, I would keep going really quickly, and the right. third one would be celebrate myself just for showing up. You know, like okay, like I'm trying to solve this problem. Like that that's a terrific thing, right? And yeah. and the fourth one might unlock the puzzle if, if it hadn't already yeah. been unlocked choose compassion yeah. choose compassion for your wife you know she may have had a hard day um she may she may be struggling with issues you might not be aware mm-hmm. of or that you might be aware of once you tune yeah. into them and have some compassion for yourself um you and, might, yeah and, and, and so what we're going to do is um, after the break we're actually going to dive into emeralds five and six and mm-hmm. we've got a couple of thoughts about the ones toward the end. So, yes. uh, so listeners, uh, if you'll stay with us, we're going to do that. When we come back from the break uh, with Peter Gazzardi, we're going to uh, have some readings from his chapters uh, that deal with the uh, Emeralds 5 and 6. Uh, Emerald 5 being realize that you already possess what you desire most, and Emerald 6, face what you fear. We're going to have the Writing Life segment. Uh, we're going to have a final reading, so uh, please stay with us. Hey listeners, I'd like to share some exciting news with you. We're coming up on our 100th episode. We're going to record that on Thursday evening, April 16th, and it's going to be free and open to the public. It's actually going to be a celebration. We're going to do it at Catawba Brewing. We're going to have music, raffles, a live podcast, might have some readings. It'll be from 6 to 9 p.m. So 
come on out, put it on your calendar, hold the date. Uh, we'll have more information available uh, on social media as we get closer to the event. But please hold that date. I also want to tell you that uh, we've got uh, four new episodes that are going up this month uh, in March on our Patreon site. That's the site where you can help us uh, help authors give voice to the written words. That is, join our team and help support uh, the costs we have to uh, put this show on. Matthew Duffus is going to talk about crafting compelling beginnings. Uh, Paula Martinak will talk about flash fiction. Randall Jones will talk about writing personal stories. And we've got a uh, publicity panel made up of Linda Bouchard, Hannah Turner, and Dawn Hardy. That actually is being recorded tonight, but we're going to put it out uh, in advance on Patreon. It'll be available uh, free to the public uh, in August at the end of Season 6. But uh, be on the lookout for those. Uh, you can check all our Patreon episodes out at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, remember April 16th. Charlotte Readers Podcast and host Landis Wade are grateful to you for listening to this show. If you like the show, please leave a short written review on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, or the podcast platform of your choice because your review helps authors share their stories with more listeners. Thank you for your support. We're back with Peter Gazzardi, author of Emeralds of Oz, Life Lessons from Over the Rainbow. Peter, we're going um, to take a couple of these chapters here. One of them here, Emerald of Wisdom 5, which is? Which is, you already possess what you desire most. Okay, and I think you've kind of set that up a little bit in your worksheet. So uh, if you're ready, um, let's read that section. This fifth emerald of wisdom provides an antidote to self-doubt and to misconceptions about ourselves that often play such an outsized role in our lives. They can keep us stuck on a pole or frozen with rust. Derailed by mistaken beliefs about ourselves, we can lose sight of what's obvious to any casual observer. We clutch at straws, we travel with oil cans, we can't sleep for fear of the sheep we're counting. We get things completely backwards. We don't realize that we already possess what matters most to us, and in the process, we lose sight of who we are. Because they emanate from Dorothy's dream, the Scarecrow, Tin Man, and Cowardly Lion represent Dorothy's own need to recognize and befriend her brains, heart, and courage. All three have been called into question. In Kansas, Hunk tells Dorothy she isn't using her head when she continues to walk past Miss Gulch's house. Think you didn't have any brains at all! Aunt M points out the volatility of Dorothy's emotions, accusing her of always getting herself into a fret over nothing. And Dorothy's courage has been tested by Miss Gulch's frontal assault. Just as her three friends eventually come to realize that they possess what they've always longed for, so does Dorothy. And as she does, so do we. Self-doubts and misconceptions will arise on your yellow brick road. And when they do, follow Dorothy's lead. Greet them with compassion. Befriend them. And watch those misguided beliefs morph into self-awareness. You already possess what you desire most. Peter, I enjoy the, <laughs> the imagery here. Stuck on a pole or frozen with rust. We know who we're talking about there, right? <laughs> because that's sort of what the scarecrow was when, when she first found him, and that's what uh, the tin man was looking for his uh, oil can, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and she helped she helped them along. Uh, they'd sort of lost sight uh, of, of what, what, their, what their own capabilities were. Um, you talk about self-doubts and misconceptions, uh, and... It's kind of it's a nice image to think of, uh, you know, your life's sort of work or struggles as sort of a yellow brick road, right? Yes. Not not a uh, not a dirt road or a muddy road, but a yellow brick road. Yeah. Right? Well, because yeah. it, it, it's it, leading to something that hopeful, perhaps. You know? Yes, and it's a framework. You know, mm -hmm. I think the wisdom that's 
that we can find in the movie is wisdom. Wisdom, you can find it in all kinds of framework. You might find it in Buddhism. Um, you might find it in Christianity. It's, but this is a framework that we're all so familiar with. Mm-hmm. And because it's a hero's journey, it's, a, it's, it's tried and tested. And it just gives us a way of looking at our experience that makes everything more manageable, which it, I love about it. Is there any significance to the color yellow for the brick road? Uh, well, an economist wrote an entire book about that a long time ago. <laughs> Other than it's two uh, syllables. And it's, it's a I mean, the red brick road might not be as... Uh, no. <laughs> yes. Well, literally, an economist wrote a book about this being all about uh, going off the gold standard, the virtues of going off the gold standard, and how yeah. that would free up more money in the economy. Right, but well, yeah, yeah but it's arbitrary, <laughs> perhaps. It's arbitrary. Okay. Yeah. Peter, this uh, emerald number five feeds into the emerald six, which, uh, which is titled? Emerald number six is Face Your Fears. Okay, and if you could read a little section of that, I'd appreciate sure, it. Sure. My own greatest fear is that lying on my deathbed, I'll realize that I've allowed mistaken beliefs formed during childhood to keep me from living fully. It's the worst fate I can imagine. So like Dorothy, I use that fear to keep me from being hemmed in by lesser frights that go bump in the night. I use it to push myself to do things that otherwise would be too scary. There's another interesting angle to explore here. Sigmund Freud, father of psychoanalysis, believes that behind every fear lies a wish. If Dorothy fears the loss of Aunt M, this is where we must also look to find the wish, independence from her aunt. Now we've discovered a hidden wellspring of dramatic tension in The Wizard of Oz, the clash between two fundamental human needs, to stay home where you're safe and loved, and to leave that home in order to make a life of your own. The arrival of Miss Gulch and the inability of Aunt Em and Uncle Henry to protect Toto brings that tension to a boil. Dorothy runs away in order to keep Toto safe, but she isn't yet ready to leave home for good. Still, events in her life keep signaling that it's time for a change. It's particularly telling that Dorothy returns home only to find the cellar door locked, with Aunt Am and Uncle Henry on the other side, unable to hear her cries for help. Despite her reluctance, the locus of agency is shifting to Dorothy. She alone will be able to resolve her competing needs for safety and belonging on the one hand and for freedom on the other. To do so, she must face her fears. Now, Peter, one of the, uh, the nice little pieces of your book here is that uh, embedded within the different emeralds, the different nine emeralds, you have these smaller I don't know, rubies, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> you know, and I'm looking at a page within this section. It says, if you come across a sign that reads Haunted Forest, I'd turn back if I were you. <laughs> now is the time for that courage you've heard so much about. <laughs> know, know, know when to, uh, to do that. And then I like the next one. When the sky blackens with winged monkeys, run. <laughs> so I'm not sure I understand. How are we facing our fears here for running uh, from the winged monkeys and, and turn, well, turning back when the sign says haunted forest? Sometimes it's just wise to face your fears another day, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, and, yep. you, and you say a good leader keeps a light hand on the reins of power. I mean, that's a, how, did, how did Dorothy accomplish that? Well— she didn't, she didn't rule with an iron fist. She really encouraged the people around her to be their best selves, mm-hmm. that she really brought out the best in them and invited them to join her on a journey that would benefit them all. I think in, in that way, she was an ideal leader. Mm-hmm. And you say in here, being afraid of fear only makes it worse, so befriend it instead. And you borrow from Franklin Roosevelt's uh, famous speech, We Have Nothing to Fear But Fear Itself. Yes. And is that kind of what Dorothy was trying to uh, implant in the minds of her three supporters here? That uh, Yes, and, and she herself had to, had to walk that journey. Her, and mm-hmm. she had to over—in order to—she faced her fear by going directly at the castle of the Wicked Witch of the West. She couldn't go around it. She had to go there and get that broomstick in order to— 
get the wizard to uh, live up to his promises. So in the story, she's forced. She can't. She can't walk around it. She can't push it away the way we might prefer to in our lives. But she's setting an example. It's like to make that fear. If you, to dissolve it, you've got to go at it. You've got to look at it and confront it. And one thing I, I learned here in reading this section um, was that you know you might be afraid of certain confrontation, or you might you might even be fearful of the fact that someone who is your adversary thinks the way they do, and you think that they're after you or to get you or for some reason. And you have this comment here. I think it's interesting. Consider the possibility that inside every winky guard, and these are the ones that were supporting the Wicked Witch of the West, right? Yes. Consider the possibility that inside every winky guard brandishing his wicked spear resides a fearful person waiting for someone courageous enough to set him free. Yeah. So maybe what's motivating that person is not the meanness towards you, but something that they're afraid of themselves, right? And maybe you've got more in common with your adversary than than you think think you do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, how can we let our fears, the fact that we all struggle with fears, create a bridge between us as Mm -hmm. opposed to dividing us? It's sort of that, uh, and I experienced this in the legal profession, myself included sometimes, if, if if my temper got up or I got angry, sometimes it had nothing to do with, and I could probably sense that in, in my adversary at times, the situation at hand as much as there might be something else going on that's driving that. In this case, these winky guards, I didn't even know they were called winky guards, but <laughs> <laughs> the winky, the ones that had the, the, the big coats and the, the spears. Yeah, yeah they, they were supporting the Wicked Witch until Dorothy melted the witch and they turned to her and said, Long live yes. Dorothy. Yes, yeah. long live Dorothy. Yeah. Uh, and they, they bowed to her, and it turned out that they were delighted to now, be Now, I free. never had any adversaries bow to me, but I did <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, but, you know, something as, as simple as, okay, I understand, or, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, or whatever. Yes. That, it can go along. Yeah, way. or I, even I appreciate you, you know, even yeah. though we're on different sides of this issue. Yeah. And, and the next one, which kind of ties in this, even winged monkeys have a backstory. That yeah, that makes them a little less frightening. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yes. What's their backstory? Their yeah. backstory yeah. is not really. It was actually in the movie, but cut out. Yeah. Uh, so you have to look to the book to find it. Uh, okay. But it turns out that the winged monkeys uh, lived in a land where uh, they were just they were playful uh, and enjoying themselves. Uh, but one day they went too far. There was a very powerful sorceress, and she was about to get married to this beautiful young prince. Um, and the winged monkeys were flying around, just fooling around, uh, as, as kids tend to do. And they decided to pick this guy up. He was dressed in his mar- He was going to get married that day. He was all dressed in silk. Uh, and they picked him up and they dumped him into a pond uh, just for the heck of it. Um, and he was cool with it. He was a mellow dude, but she was really unhappy about it. Uh, so she, she said to them... Um, she, she actually took them, she tied their, their wrists and dropped them in the pond, and they were about to drown uh, when her husband said, no, 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 don't, don't, set the, don't do that. And she said, well, okay, I, will, I won't drown you, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this spell on you where whosoever, who has this golden cap, who puts on this golden cap, can have three wishes, can dictate to you three things that they want you to do. And you will know, have I, to do them. I didn't know there was so much to the, to yeah. the winged monkey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but when you know that, suddenly they're, they're not bad. Right. They're just doing the bidding of the Wicked Witch of the West, kind of like, like her troops, her soldiers. They're just doing her bidding because that's what they need to do in the moment or think they need to do. But they in themselves are not evil or wicked. That's great. All right, Peter, we're going to do a little writing life segment here. You're, you've been an acquiring editor in the book business for 45 years, uh, just for you know, the authors and even readers that might be curious. What is an acquiring editor? An acquiring editor, so the way book publishers are structured, um, at least the major publishers, what they now call legacy publishers, um, the way uh, books begin often an, an author will have an idea, the author will make an arrangement with an agent, and then write a book proposal. Um, that would be nonfiction primarily for that, right? Uh, yeah. Right, nonfiction yeah. primarily. But so fiction's a different route. Fiction's yeah. a different story. We'll get to that. Yeah. But nonfiction, they'll come up with an idea, 
They'll write a proposal. The agent will submit the proposal to editors at publishing houses. And that's the kind of editor that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So their part of their job is to read all these different submissions, decide which ones they're excited about, and then do the lobbying inside the publishing house to get the money, mm -hmm. to get the excitement, the enthusiasm, the marketing people behind mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. to, to bid for that book and to acquire those rights. So okay. that's the first step is they're, they're responsible for acquiring the books. Gotcha. Um, and then because it's a proposal, the author goes off for six months, a year, two years to write the book. And when they send chunks of material in, they, that goes to the editor and the editor reads that material mm -hmm. and, and deals with it on a kind of structural basis, like in terms of the idea. So is it mm -hmm. still working? And ho hopes they made a good decision. About right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And if not, I mean, if the material's working, what did it? What's exciting about it? If it's not working, what can we lose? You know, what do we? How do we work together to make mm -hmm. this material really sing in the way that I'd hoped it would? Mm -hmm. So it's that kind of fundamental editing, um, and then later on, um, when the material's in good shape, the editor will probably go over it, uh, mm -hmm. quick line edit it. So it's kind of more polish. of a content editing at that point, and then you yes. have copy editors that come back later and deal with the grammar. That's right. That's yeah. exactly. What about right. fiction? The fiction comes to fiction's a little different because. Um, if you're, you know, if you're John Grisham, you could probably write an idea on a on a napkin, on a cocktail napkin, mm -hmm. and the publisher will buy it. You I'm, might I'm not sure even he, have to I'm do sure that. I'm sure he's listening to this podcast. So he'll, <laughs> yeah, he'll give you a call. Well, so he yeah. knows this already. He, he knows this. He yeah, knows yeah. this. But for for most other novelists. Um, it's not usually enough to write a couple of chapters and then say, and here's how the rest of the novel's going to go. Right. You pretty much have to write the whole thing. Um, yeah. And then, so it's on the basis of a complete manuscript. There's a lot less guesswork, usually, mm -hmm. uh, with fiction for that reason than there is with nonfiction. Uh, which sells better? Uh, over time, nonfiction is the steadier bet, is the more solid bet. Mm -hmm. um, all right, so all you fiction writers out there, hey, you know, uh, well, you know, you're you're all dreaming. I right. would imagine of being the the one or two right. mega, right. The, you know, the mega sellers. Um, but uh, it's tougher at the kind of lower end of the the fiction process. All right, so Peter, so you've got all this experience. You, you've been working in traditional publishing for years. You've you've edited lots of, you know. Famous people, I guess yes. we can call them famous authors, but they're famous people who became authors. Sure. And, yeah. And you've acquired a lot of information. Um, I think I mentioned this to you before the podcast. Lawyers can be their own worst clients sometimes if they try to represent themselves. Did you knew <laughs> you knew so much about the writing process and the business? So how did it go for you, kind of through this process? I yeah. thought that might be where you were heading here. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It it turns out that. No matter how many people you've edited, you know, you are really dependent on your editor, mm -hmm. especially as a first-time author, uh, mm -hmm. and on whoever can give you good advice, whoever can read it with some objectivity and tell you if you're headed in the right direction or not. Um, it's just really difficult that first time especially. And I don't know, it might be as difficult the second time. I'll let you know should I mm -hmm. ever take that on. Mm -hmm. But it's very hard to know whether are you writing too much are you over explaining mm -hmm. are you under explaining like mm -hmm. where in your mind the ideas might be clear but where is the reader uh, and are and how are you connecting with that reader and then just structuring out what you've written it's like okay i've written a good sentence now i've got a good paragraph where's the next paragraph where does this argument go like mm -hmm. how do you build it out um, mm -hmm. So that it's coherent, mm -hmm. and that's really difficult to do. Uh, it, and and I think that what I learned most, and it's really hard for an editor, but um, what I learned is you've got to be able to relax and let yourself write crappy mm -hmm. drafts, mm -hmm. just not very good material. Uh, and then once you've spilled out a lot of stuff, you know, then you can sift through it and find what's good, what's not good. Get rid of what isn't, and start to build on the flecks of gold that you've mm -hmm. you've you've panned. So, what was it from your background that you were able to harness and use in this process? Because there's several things about this book. <laughs> one of which is kind of trying to figure out how to lay it out and how to, you know, put in the emeralds and put in the sub, yes. sub emeralds. And yes, did any of your experience there come into play with that part of, or is there something else maybe you, you drew on from your experience? Well. In terms of the structure, I mean, I think my mind works 
pretty well in that regard, trying to figure out structure. Although, arguably, it's a little bit confusing. I've got 62 bits of wisdom. They're organized in a row. Somewhere in there are separately numbered nine pieces of wisdom, which are emeralds. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure I got that right. (laughs) Um, But but I did the best I could. Yeah, and you Uh, came up with a nice little uh, graphic that I'm going to put in the show notes that has this emerald with these little lines off of it that has the different pieces there. Um, okay. So, uh, your writing process, um, you know, you'd been, you, you, you'd sort of been the editor. You're looking at stuff as it comes in. Now you've got to sit down and, and do this thing called, called writing. Yes. Uh, do you do it morning, night? Did you tackle it, uh, you know, in, in long spurts, short segments. Uh, you know. <laughs> well, I tried everything. Yeah. I really tried okay. everything. At yeah. first, I had a really tight deadline. We were going to try to crank this out to take advantage of the 75th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a three-month deadline, oh, wow. and I and I wrote a bunch of stuff, and it just wasn't very good. Um, I didn't think so. The publisher didn't think so. So, okay, we're going to miss that deadline. Mm -hmm. So then I reconfigure the whole thing around the hero's journey. I decide that should be the structure. We're going to go on a hero's journey here and talk about how Dorothy is on one. I mean, that makes perfect sense because of your own experience in in reading novels and trying to help authors see that there needs to be this journey. Yes. You know, there needs to be these obstacles. There needs to be this down protagonist. There needs to be an antagonist who's got an interesting sad to them, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. But it didn't feel fresh enough. It mm-hmm. felt a little tired. It felt like, you know, I, it just didn't feel vital to me. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was a second draft that, that went the way of all things. Mm-hmm. Um, third draft was starting to get kind of good, but didn't really make it. It was the fourth draft. It was finally... I mean, I have to tell you, the truth is that after two years of doing this, I like gave up. Mm. I was like, this wasn't a good idea. Mm. I'm an editor. I'm not a writer. Can't do it. Um, And it was only when the publisher came after me, maybe a year later, a year and a half later, and said, well, it's fine if you want to give up, but you owe us some money. Uh, We paid you an advance. Um, and that if you're not going to deliver us a manuscript we can publish, uh, we'd like a check, please. Um, And motivated by a desire not to pay them a check, I went back to the material a fourth time, um, and with the guidance from my wife, from my editor, I realized I was trying to be too ambitious, and what I really needed to do was hone this idea and simplify it, and then I focused it on the wisdom itself, and then this idea of the emeralds kind of emerged. And then all of a sudden, things fell into place and coalesced, and, and the book uh, mm. kind of uh, it took it took its own life. So you had your own hero's journey. All was lost, down and out. It, the, book, <laughs> the book was done. The yeah. Wicked Witch comes in and says, nope, I'm going right. to—you're going to pay, dude. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe, although maybe she was Glinda saying, oh, maybe, hey. Maybe Glinda. Yeah, yeah okay. it depends um, on how you look at it. Yeah. So so having written this book and, you know, with your combined experience in the industry for many, many years um, as an editor and now as an author, uh, do you have any thoughts for aspiring writers uh, who are looking to be published in terms of uh, what they should be thinking? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, a, it's an entirely new world from the world I grew up in, in book publishing. That was just dominated by, oh, maybe it's a dozen publishers then, maybe 15, and now it's really five. Um, but there are all these new little publishers popping up now that it's really, you can publish in electronic form with a minimal expense. Uh, so you can you could start your own publishing house, and mm-hmm. indeed lots and lots of writers do. Um, and that's a perfectly viable way to hone your craft to hone your marketing skills. And often, publishers, the big publishers, the legacy publishers, they're scanning the horizon, looking for for self-published mm-hmm. or small books that have been published by a small publisher um, as, as, a, as ways to develop talent. You know, mm-hmm. they're the, mm-hmm. you know, they're the, uh, what, the A-League, the B-League, the, the, right. uh, uh, and, and so you could, your book could take off and a pub, big publisher could come and offer you an advance and say, you know, let's, now we'll apply our, our drivers, our engines to this and see what we can do together. We, so, we've yeah. had authors that I've spoken to on the show who've, did independently published books first, and then they got a traditional publisher, yep. and, and that made them happy. But then we also have had some 
they went traditional first, wasn't weren't happy with the process, right, and became very successful mm-hmm. as independent publishers, yes, making money, you know, doing yes. what they love. So, yes, absolutely, you know, different ways to do it. Yeah, more, but more alternatives. Bottom line is a lot more choices today for for mm-hmm. an author, an aspiring mm-hmm. author, than there used to be, which is a wonderful thing. All right, Peter. Final writing life question before we have a we have a few quotes and we then dive into the last read here. Um, did this book take you over your rainbow, and did you find your way home afterwards? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, it's a story that's still unfolding. Yeah. Um, so, are you still in Oz now? Yeah, it's still it's. <laughs> I'm still feeling <laughs> gratified and glad and grateful that yeah. I did this. Yeah. You know, it is not the the quick and easy path to riches and fame that, right. that everyone dreams and hopes of. But people can't uh, see it, but you are smiling. You've been smiling most of this <laughs> session here. You, you yeah. genuinely enjoy talking about this yes. and engaging with this topic. Yes, yeah. and with you. Yeah. I mean, and with an intelligent person who's read the material <laughs> and responds favorably to it. How could right. I not love that experience? Yeah, that's, it's fantastic. Right. And I think you're putting your finger right on what's so satisfying about yeah. about writing. It's a way of yeah. communicating with other people, and it's it's yeah. so satisfying. That's yeah. great. All right, a couple of quotes, and then uh, we'll, we'll go to your final read. But uh, from one of the books... Um, and maybe from the movie, a heart is not judged by how much you love, but by how much you are loved by others. Now, yes. is that, you know, I think I, there's some there's some ambiguity in that. And I think <laughs> I think there's been some actual writing about that, uh-huh. right, right? Because in one respect, it it's sort of saying that the heart is defined by how, how others love you, as opposed to how. You love it. So yeah. is it something to think about, right? Uh, no, I, I think it's just hooey. I just think it's just, that's the part of the wizard that's yeah, just blarney. Okay, so you you don't, know? You don't, you're not buying it. I right? don't buy it for a moment. He's just filling the air with noise as he is very good at good, doing. Good. I, but I like this one. Some people without brains do an awful lot of talking, don't you think? Oh, that's a great, that's a, good that's one, a right? great, great <laughs> quote. We can all, thoughts are immediately coming into our minds of people that that fits. And yeah. it's our first inkling that the scarecrow is really incredibly bright right from the outset. You know, we get, wow, he is so on it. He thinks he doesn't have any brains. Look how smart Look and how clever smart and Just insightful. Just you have brains, you do an awful lot of talking. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then this last one before the last read, uh, you have plenty of courage, I'm sure, answered Oz. All you need is confidence in yourself. There's no living thing that is not afraid when it faces danger. The true courage is in facing danger when you are afraid. And that kind of courage you have in plenty. So we bind into that one? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that time he got it right. He, he gets it right about 50% of the time. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay. So we're going to finish up here with a read. Um, it's uh, a nice read that to finish a story that starts... You know, on a landscape in Kansas, takes us over the rainbow, uh, and then takes us back home again. Because after all, there is no place like home. Like home. Yes. All right. So, I'm going to have you read this last uh, segment. When Dorothy realizes there's no place like home, she's not just referring to the farmhouse where she lives with Aunt Em and Uncle Henry. With wisdom newly accumulated in Oz. Dorothy is pointing to something beyond a construct of wood and plaster, to a space she's come to locate within herself. Here she's internalized the power she once deferred to others, which in itself is a tremendous accomplishment. Yet the reaches of this inner landscape extend far beyond the boundaries of psychology. Dorothy has discovered a conduit to the vast realm of the collective unconscious. The home to which she's referring is less a physical place than it is a feeling, and less a feeling than it is a state of being. In fact, it is the ground state of all being. This is the spiritual infinitude from which each of us rises up briefly in this lifetime like a wave on the ocean, individual yet wholly connected, before falling back to merge with the endless depths from which we came. Dorothy's true home and yours and mine is the boundless wellspring of creation, the divine force that animates every religion 
and imbues every aspect of the universe with energy. This is the final lesson Dorothy brings back from her travels through Oz. This is the golden fleece of her mythological hero's journey, the priceless treasure at the end of the successful quest. It is the emerald brought up from the deepest mine shaft, truth at its most hard-won and profound. The longing that launched Dorothy on her journey and inspires us to set out on our own has finally found both its source and its fulfillment. Home is where you are right now. You and I are home in this moment, and in this one, and in this one, too. We are home in each breath. We are home in the spacious awareness that lies within us and also extends infinitely far beyond us to include all of existence in its embrace. We are home because, like Dorothy, we never left. We just needed to become aware of this in order to return. All right, Peter, great words to, uh, to bring this episode to a close. I want to thank you for sharing this space with me today, what we'll call our home for, for today. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and you're, we're going to have in the show notes uh, links to your website, which people can go on and they can find the worksheet and they can find some videos about you. Um, and uh, I just want to thank you for coming today and inspiring me and hopefully our listeners too with uh, with these thoughts. And, and it's fun to just think back about, uh, you know, Days of youth when you when you watched The Wizard of Oz. It wasn't on Netflix. It wasn't on Amazon. You had to wait every year. Yeah, <laughs> and that there was some anticipation that went along with that. Absolutely. But uh, but we did it in our homes, right? We right. did it in our homes. <laughs> we did it in our homes. Yeah. So thank and, you for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker, and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.